Okay, well, hello, everyone, uh, and welcome to uh, tonight's um, In Conversation between myself uh, and Caitlin Doty. My name is John Troyer, and I'm a member of the Center for Deaf and Society here at the University of Bath, and uh, Caitlin Doty is uh, joining me today. We're joining each other uh, to talk about what is exciting and new um, and innovative <laughs> in uh, death, dying, and uh, the dead body. Um, and uh, by way of introduction, I'll just say very quickly um, that uh, I'm uh, John Troyer, member of the Center for Death Society, former director, and now Death Studies Scholar at Large. And um, I'll just introduce you, Caitlin, very quickly. Caitlin Doty is New York Times bestselling author, uh, founder of the Order of the Good Death, and uh, has done many, many things. Also has a degree from the University of Chicago, which I think should be commented on more frequently. Than Why the should that be commented on? Because it's a good school. And you should be proud of the fact you have a philosophy degree from the University of Chicago. I don't have a philosophy oh, degree. degree. I have a I have a medieval history degree. Medieval history. Okay. Well, anyway, even less even less useful. Yeah. Well, the... but University of Chicago is a good school, so that's why uh, I think it's important. Anyway, I've already gotten this off track. Oh my god! I have to say, there's nothing more gratifying than coming to speak at an academic conference and having someone be like, "You actually went to a really good school," and I'm like, "Oh my gosh, thank you." Yeah. No, I was. I, I wish. <laughs> I wish I, of all the interviews I've heard with you over the years, I'm like, no one ever talks about the fact you actually went to a good school and got a degree from a very good school. It's a hard school to get into. So uh, anyway, it's a hard school to get into, although being from Hawaii helps, I think. I think Aloha. there was me and like one other person from Hawaii. Yeah. So that was a that was a helpful. Maybe part. we can just but, chuckle hey. this and we'll just talk about Hawaii for the next uh you know, hours since we, since we, well, you grew up there more than I did, but I grew up there. Anyway, I'm, we're already off track. We didn't listen. We had serious conversations. Anyway, so what Kayla and I wanted to talk about tonight, we're going to do is we have a bunch of things, we, we, a bunch of things, a group of things we wanted to talk around, um, death and dying and sort of the idea of newness and, and um, uh, sort of what, what is exciting and new and those things. And then we will, of course, take questions, which I think that's important to do, sort of everyone comes in. So down, <clears throat> pardon me, in the Q and A box, you can drop in questions, and we'll we'll talk for I, we we said like 40, 45 minutes or so, and then we can start to get into questions because that takes the pressure off us too, and <laughs> we're happy to take questions as well that way. So, um, uh, so Caitlin, why did we when we talk about this? I think I think we said that you wanted to start with a couple of quick questions or a couple of provocative thoughts or about newness or, or talking to me about that way or is that how we want to try and start it or yeah well I always like to start with some provocative thoughts right. yeah exactly exactly um I well what I was interested in in this conversation I think when you go out and you um as I do and talk about new things in death it's obvious it's it's more to a general audience. And it's sort of like, here's what is human composting. Here are the steps. Here's where it is legal. But I suspect that a lot of people who are watching this right now, having attended the conference or, or familiar with my or your work, already have a base level of knowledge on these things. And the sort of basics of what is making up the trends in the funeral industry and, and death care and how we see death and dying um, in both the UK and the US. So I think a very interesting question and something that we, you and I, have gone back and forth on for years, sometimes in a sort of contentious head buddy manner, is the difference between how an academic, which is you, and an advocate, which is more me, sees the idea of the new. And, and how, how the freedom we have to talk about the new, the freedom we sometimes have to like fetishize the new a little bit and how it's different. I mean, I've seen you give talks where your main 
thesis of your talk is there's absolutely nothing new in death <laughs> and dying. So I guess my provocative question to you is what, I mean, in a conversation where the title is death exciting and new right. is your position as an academic, there's actually nothing exciting and new in death. Um, yeah. So I would hope I didn't cross my arms like that, but I probably did. So yeah, uh, yeah did I? Okay. Um, so yeah, no, I think, so when we talk about the idea of like newness, uh, because, well, here's what I'm usually trying to get at when I talk about this, which is when we talk about something that's new around death and dying, the, the, the main thing to keep in mind is that it's not as if things come from out of nowhere. So, so anything that's described as new, and we can talk about the, the handling of human remains and final disposition, whether it's, you know, burial or cremation or um, alkalinidrosis or any other, whatever we want to talk about, organ donation, um, um, the, that, that these things develop over time, so they don't come out of nowhere, and it's not as if there haven't been precedents or antecedents to do that. So my, my, my thing when I talk about new is that sometimes what is described as new actually has been around for a long time, but that it, it's just easy to sort of describe it as new because it, it makes for better copy for, for journalists, which is not a slight on journalists. It can make for better copy for editors, but that, you know, generally speaking, I just find that sometimes whatever is described as the new isn't that new. And sometimes it's just the shock of the new. So are there things that are new? Yes, yes, they're new for a certain generation or for people to think about, but it, it's not as if they didn't happen in a different form another time. And that to me is, is the distinction I'm trying to make, that we shouldn't be so surprised. So very quickly, because we have other things we want to talk about, the example I would use today would be something like, um, you know, the sort of the back and forth a bit about whether it was appropriate, how we want to think about using something like Zoom for funerals, particularly during the pandemic, which has continued now. But I think that, you know, to me, I first came across webcasting, I think it was in 2007, there was a company that was doing like executive business meetings, and they had moved into offering their services for, for funerals. But also too, like, I think if you understand the, the sort of the, if you know a little bit about like the history of the communication technology, so you know, like the telegraph line gets used right away to, to communicate that some has died that wasn't visual but it's a communication technology so whatever communication technologies we have in our hands as humans as a species that are on the shelf we're going to use for funerals i mean i'm just thoroughly convinced of it so that's why i'm thinking that sometimes things are new and maybe i'm just being you know trying to be provocative myself by saying that well, but, yeah, less. <laughs> but i also I, I do think there's an academic tendency to want to put things into context which is what an academic should do put it you know put it in its its place within the history of something right. or or concept um right. but as an advocate you know, I, yes yeah locate you want to locate it you want to locate um, it yes this was not found in situ this was you know after, right, exactly yeah, very good Thank after you, much yeah. excavation over millennia um i think that as an advocate though when i'm doing you know an interview with a morning npr show um and they say human composting like what an what an exciting development people seem really interested in this can you tell us a little bit about it um you know i am not going to start my 30 seconds that i have to explain it with like we first have to talk about decomposition at its basic level you know because i just i just don't have time the way that i might in a you know 30 page article to dive into the absolute context and history and that's actually often tough for me because i think that as an advocate 
sometimes the context and the historical context is actually the thing that most changes people's mind about something. You right. know, so for example, yeah. if we're talking about something like green burial or composting, if we can let people know, especially in the United States, that embalming is actually the new technology. And this is partly your thing as well, is that embalming is a deep technology. It's a technology of the human corpse. It's something that was quite, um, yes, it you know started in the way it is now in the 19th century, but it's really quite a 20th century push, um, beginning of the 20th century capitalist push. And that context, I think, really helps people say, maybe I don't need embalming. Or my mom, um, maybe. And so having that contact is actually very important. But as an advocate, it is much easier to kind of put it into a quick context and then get on to like why people love it and why it's exciting and why it's a you know new. And that's what I'm talking about with sort of the the fetishizing of the new a little bit. Yeah, but also too, and I think you're you're absolutely right. And I, I mean, we both have been in like radio interview conversations where where I can tell I can tell, um, particularly with National Public Radio in America, they really want me to just say this that, but they're also always disappointed when they get hold of me that I don't have a British accent. That seems to be the thing that like, <laughs> NPR producers are like. Oh, but you're American. I'm like, yeah. Is that all right? Like I'm. Midwest I'm also Europe. sort of upset that you don't yeah. have a British yeah, I know. accent. But that I think that that there is because of um, uh, attention spans, but also how again how you know things are produced. But oftentimes too, I'll say, well, you know, sometimes it takes a little bit longer to explain this and try to try to make that shorter. But I also think that that it, it is you're right that I think I completely agree that that once I think if you can even for a second give anyone an audience or a group of people like just a glimpse of a broader perspective on how some of these things have have been around or changed whatever it might be and, and embalming is a good i think a really good example then then it is possible i think to sort of open up the possibility of, of like seeing things in a new way and maybe that's the newness just seeing it in a new way as opposed to thinking of it in a kind of like dogmatic like you know stuck way and maybe that's to me what i'm trying to get to more of you know, no, well, and that and that gets to a conversation that we've had a lot, and um, part of our disagreement. Although I, I imagine that we actually agree on probably about ninety five percent of things here, but the idea that there are are different waves of these movements of death awareness and death acceptance, or now death positivity, that I see them as almost like the waves of feminism. That each time they come out, there's a new there are new concerns attached to them new ideas attached to them. And you are really a student of the 1970s death acceptance wave. Right. Um, and it absolutely should not be forgotten. Um, but I feel like every new time that we come to a, and you complain about this, listen, I complain about this too, the idea of a headline that's like, death is having a moment, right. <laughs> you know, which is like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And of course yeah. there's death standing there with like his side yeah. being, yes, like, yes. death is always having a moment, yeah. you know. Yes. Um, but there are these waves of culturally death having a moment and it has to do with all these different factors. And it's not in my contention, the same wave every time. No. You know, the like new ideas that come with it or the cultural concerns that come with it are going to be different every time. Yeah, no, and I completely agree. And I, I actually think that it's, I mean, of course, we could just now spend the rest of the time talking about the 1970s. However, we won't do that because that would be unfair to the rest of the island. Like, what? Yeah, exciting in 1970. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but it was, like it really was. Like, I'm, I'm not always convey this, but I think that, 
Um, you're absolutely right. And I think that, you know, there are historical conditions. I mean, that's why I always think it's important. I, I really important, I think, to highlight how the, the, the huge impact, I think, I know that you can look back at the historical record if we want to look back at the evidence of it. But that, you know, second wave feminism and the, the women's movement in the 1970s, like 60s and 70s had in like forming a lot of the ideas uh, in the politics around death and dying that we have today. Um, and that, 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 you know, we've got these different political movements that coincided, but then, you know, different parts of it kind of get forgotten about. And so it is, it's the bringing back, it's the, you know, the reemergence of memory that I think, or memories of history, that that, that itself also then becomes something that is, is in the kind of, a, like a kind of the new, because it is something like, oh, I didn't realize that this is something that was part of that kind of, you know, you know political discussion, or even the early environmental movement. Um, you know, things like Earth Day starting in 1970 and the idea of, you know, like dying and things. Anyway, but you're right. And I think that the, like these different, um, that like the different waves that affect, because I know that there's like, you know, first wave, second wave, third wave, fourth wave feminism. And we talked about this in terms of, of death movements too. But that, I think that they, they do respond to the specific historical, like the events that are going on, you know, in people's lives. And I think that that's, um, in that, in that, in that things are found that are new. I feel like I'm really just trying to, I'm rambling on that one, but you're right. No, no, no. I agree with I you. That's, I agree. <laughs> that's a, it's a really, it's a really interesting thing to think about. I mean, from both an academic and advocacy perspective and something that makes me think about is how death positivity, which is the, the movement that I associate with myself right. or that I myself associate with right now is very, I mean, it stands on the shoulders of all sorts of movements, but it's very much a, a queer movement in a lot of ways. Many of the participants are very, um, have a lot of focus around the politics and like the necropolitics specifically of the LGBTQ plus dead body. Um, but your work is very connected to the AIDS epidemic and the fight of queer people against funeral homes during that cultural moment. So even that is not a new concern in the funeral industry. No, and and I think absolutely. I mean, I think moments, um, moments of pandemic, moments of public health, kind of like you know emergency or or certainly of death. I mean, you know, that's when we that's when we find. So we what we find, I think, I arguably would be that it's in those moments, whether it is the early days of the AIDS epidemic, you know, which is kind of a long period from the eighties into the nineties, would you know sort of gloss over that, and is still happening today. But also then something like COVID, you know, it's in those moments that that there are there are things that are done that are done differently and the fact that they're done differently can be somewhat kind of new but nonetheless they're always around us just waiting to be used in that way and i think that that is and so i think that um that was i think that's one of the the things that came out most recently of covid was there were a lot of things that were developed as a result of, of aids actually that got picked up and used and i'm not even sure people realized it well, could you could you sort of explain what was at stake during the period of of AIDS or the beginning of AIDS and the the sort of context with the funeral industry? Sure. Well, th and this would be more. I mean, this is certainly more. I, so this would be more in America, though. There certainly were elements of this around the around the rest of the world. So okay. it, it would expand into the UK. But I know the American sense best, which is just very quickly to say that you know once you had you know fairly or unfairly um, described, you know, abject populations so you know, gay men and IV drug users, but particularly, you know, gay men dying of complications of, of HIV, um, 
that you know that created just such stigma around the individuals who were dead through homophobia, but also because of this disease. And so it was you know you had a lot of members of the funeral industry who just didn't want to do have anything to do with you know even touching or being around that kind of corpse because it was believed that they were not just like potentially you know sites of disease, but also like being treated as if they'd been exposed to radiation. Um, you know, with the funeral directors wearing lead-lined gear, which you, you would use for gamma radiation exposed. But I mean, it was it was just really all over the place. Um, and through a lack of information, and I, I don't necessarily blame funeral directors at this time, because I kind of get sort of maybe that response. But nonetheless- well, the beginning, Like the beginning of COVID, where yeah, right. we just <laughs> yeah. weren't sure yeah. what the actual science was. Right. Although the although ironically the the wearing of PPE gear like it was for everyone but particularly in the funeral industry that actually is a result of the experience of coming out of AIDS that 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 universal precautions begin to require that so much so that when I when I've written about PPE in the past I always made the point of explaining what the acronym meant <laughs> because they're like no one knows what this means but now everyone you know knows what it is but and that was something that actually was something that was new this idea of like you want to you know ascribe a kind of universal precaution to all dead bodies, assume they all have like the most infectious diseases. And so we should follow these precautions to try and prevent it, whether or not that's the case. But the point I think with AIDS is that what it what a condition were a number of changes that were both not only structural, but also then cultural. So for example, in the United States example, cremation becomes something that suddenly becomes much more used uh, as a result of um, the experience of, of, of you know, partners and lovers who had no legal rights, but may, if they weren't excluded from the funeral by the families, which did happen sometimes, they would want to schedule what they would or create what they call like a non-traditional funeral. So in a way, you know, cremation was something we've been around for a long time, was given a kind of like a, a newness to it, which was suddenly we can have these services and we don't have to have the sort of, whether it's in the church or some form that way. And I think that to me is, is one of those things where an example where something does get picked up and used in a new way. Um, and, and, and the same thing with COVID, right? You know, although I think we're still trying to make sense of everything that happened that way. Um, oh, no, we absolutely, yeah, we absolutely still are. in the middle and, of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and I mean, that's true. And well, what's so sad is that we're still in the middle of it, but already like loathe to talk about it. Yeah, forget um, it. And some, of, and some of that is trauma from just nonstop having to talk about it for so long. So it's not like we want to forget everyone who died and forget all the lessons learned, but there is an exhaustion that comes from continuing to talk about the pandemic. But at the same time, you're very right that we are still, people ask me all the time in interviews, like where, you know, what it, what did, what did COVID do to the funeral industry? Did it do to death and dying? And my answer is always like, we don't know. Right. Like we're like we have we have theories, um, right. you know, academics have theories. We people on the ground have theories, but we just don't know yet what what like I hate to pair it with like exciting and new what the exciting and new right. things to come yeah. out of, of COVID are going to be. And I mean, one thing is it, it's interesting in um, legalizing the human composting process in California. I think that the fact that we were in a pandemic and we could make the argument, hey, at at multiple points, we were very overwhelmed with the dead. Not only do we not have great emergency systems in place for such a thing, but we don't have enough methods of disposing of the dead body. You right. know, they acted in California where I'm where I'm from, they acted like it was some grand gift that they were allowing the stacks at the crematory to go, you know, 24 hours a day. 
right. that they opened up the crematory just to be used all day. Yeah, okay, but there's still hundreds of, yeah. of dead human bodies without that. So the idea of COVID potentially allowing for more different and new um, disposition options for the dead human body is, is hopefully part of it. I think something else anecdotally that I've noticed and, and a lot of people have noticed is that strangely people seem actually more um, desirous of gathering for funerals, whether right. it's just like a simple witness cremation or something because of being kept away from it. Right. During the pandemic, you know, being, you know, I think that almost prior to the pandemic, you had such a trend of like, oh, do we really need to be there for the funeral? You know, I know mom wants us to all go, but it's sort of weird to me. It doesn't have a lot of meaning to me. And then all of a sudden when their grandmother died potentially during COVID and they were not able to see their family and everyone's kept completely separate. Right. I think it showed people the, what being separate is actually like and how they might now want to be present um, at a death or, or for a funeral or with the dead body. And so, yes, COVID has a lot of innovations about live streaming funerals and such, but I think it also almost will take us the other way of, of reproving the thesis that being you know present with the dead and, and creating ritual around the dead is, is good. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that there's been absolutely, although I, the, the, I think it is also true. It's also the case that, that the idea of like streaming a funeral, I, I don't know why I keep talking about live streaming or, or video casting funerals. I think that's here to stay actually. Something it was already around, but I think it's here to stay as a kind of like permanent thing to offer people. Cause it was, I think that, that it was, it was interesting because as a, as a tech, there's a whole thing around technology and the study of technology, which is sort of the principle of, of good enough when it may not be the, it may not be the best, but sometimes if it's good enough, it's, you know, it, it, it actually works. It's workable. And I think that for a lot of people, the idea of, of attending a funeral through um, the idea of, there will always be people who would never want to attend a funeral through any kind of like, it, you know, streaming or mediated however you want to think about it kind of online experience just would not want that they'd want to do it in person they'd want to be there and i appreciate it and i get that there are other times through other circumstance or because it just makes them more comfortable because they they may have problems being in crowds or they're afraid of you know infection whatever it might be they can do it online and i think that that for a lot of people that that is still very meaningful for them to participate with and that for a lot of people who had to have online kind of funerals that something was more meaningful than they did anticipate. And in fact, there was even had more privacy to it than than they would have expected. So I think so I think that it's always a combination of reasons. I think that's why that's here to stay is something that is is not going to go away. And I, I think that's okay. Like I don't think there's any, I don't think the devalues, I don't think you're saying devaluing either, Caitlin, but I don't think it devalues that kind of experience. Um you know, I think no, there's new ways to do it. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I think that, well, first of all, I always said that I would I would probably never go to an online funeral or a memorial. You know, I'm a show up kind right. of gal. Right. Um, but then my, my cousin died in this really terrible, terrible way. Right. And I was all set to go to her big memorial. And then I got horrific strep throat, like horrific. Right. And I was not about to go and infect all of my older relatives with my still very infectious strep throat. And so I, I plunked right down in my bed with all my pillows and, and watched um, the live stream and cried and, you know, had all of those experiences. And I think that what you mentioned about the comfort level 
is actually something that I think a lot about with regards to home funerals and an innovation. <laughs> and of course, home funerals, meaning taking care of the dead body at home with your family is a by far the least new thing of everything. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, than, absolutely. Yeah. Other than yes. digging a hole in the ground and putting right. a dead body in it and calling it a green burial, you know, there's, there's nothing. In fact, it's the most, you know, human, one of the most human, other than having sex and having children and eating, you know, right sitting there with the dead body or putting it in a hole or kind of the oldest human activities that can be done, right? Um, but with home funerals in the way they're being done now, I think that there is something about a modern funeral. And this is both, I'm probably slightly more in the US, but also in the UK when you go to you know the cremation or whatnot, there is an element of if you're the closest person to the dead person, there's a performativity that's required of right. you especially if it's a larger funeral, you know, you people come in for the visitation, they come in for the mass, whatever it is. And it's all about you who may be a deep, a very much an introvert or very much someone who just kind of wanted personal time right. with your thoughts about this very, you know, right. huge change in your life and this death. And I think that in a way, the live stream concept does something, so is playing with something actually sort of similar to a home funeral, which is like, how do you give people time to grieve in cultures like the US and the UK, where a big swath of the culture is not very comfortable with active out loud grieving? Right. You know, and they yeah. don't like, of course, there are many cultures where your feelings on grand display are incredibly welcome. And right. actually almost like a requirement, you know, part of part of the ritual or part of the part of the performance of death. But in certain cultures, especially the white parts of our cultures, there's a lot of, you know, you don't go and experience the full range of emotion publicly. And so having the private time with the dead body at home or just being able to go to a live stream, if it would, you know, it's a different situation, then I think it kind of fulfills a similar role and in a way that we hadn't really been acknowledging, which I think is a reason that a lot of people don't maybe have a profound ritual experience in a modern funeral. Although, uh, although I think, well, yeah, you yeah, I, I see that, but I, I think two rituals, you know, change and what's, you know, what's profound to one person is, you know, going to be differently profound to a person, which I think you agree with in a different No, no, no. Different yeah, but, no, I don't agree. Yes, no, I do agree. But I think I'm sort of, I'm speaking in an advocate sense now in the sense of right. people just telling me again and again, listen, I went to the funeral at the funeral home. It didn't do a lot for me. I'm just going to go to the live stream this time because- right. Right. didn't do a lot for me you know yeah yeah i gotcha although i think that there yeah although and there is something to be said about i think taking in more having done this for both my parents now and actually for my sister too to a certain degree but also both my parents taking a more hands-on approach to organizing and you know arranging not arranging well yeah arranging the funeral doing it running it doing the whole thing um and that that although not everyone not everyone is going to be is going to want to do that or be able to do that but that certainly for me and also for in the case of my dad and myself when my mom died that was something that was very important to us and that was that was that became part of the meaningfulness of the funeral was the ability just to arrange and do all that so i it, yes I, I agree with that i take that point that that is um but again too that's not it was it 
so then and it's funny because we keep coming back to the word new maybe i should never have used the word new in this like, <laughs> you, like, you named this. This i know i'm the one who did it but well, like no, I, you know. but i think new is the is the like new is kind of the provocative question there you should have called it innovative and new question mark yeah or new ish <laughs> Air yeah, yeah 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 um because yeah. i think that is the, the but something that we should talk about and i think something we are both interested in is the idea of the relationship of an academic thinking about these things versus an advocate thinking about these things versus the practitioners that are actually doing this. And I, um, I am a practitioner in the sense that I've, um, traveled and visited so many places. I've worked, worked as a funeral director for years. I owned funeral homes for years. So I do have a practitioner angle, a big one to what I do, but frankly, all the work I do as a practitioner is always kind of in service of advocacy, I think. Whereas, you know, the work that you might do in the field or with data is in service of your ultimate academic thesis in a lot of ways. But like, I don't think either of us actually truly, you know, purely know what it's like to be a real practitioner in the in the field that actually are the ones who are implementing whether it's live streaming composting um cremation aquamation whatever it is i mean i guess i i can come close to understanding that but again as i'm doing it i'm always thinking about how this fits into the larger history and scheme and advocacy of of um the industry so how does what we do and how we talk about things that are new new affect practitioners yeah no i think about because I, I it was it the 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 history well so like who is a practitioner that's always an interesting question to me because i think that you obviously you you approach you know you came to the funeral industry as someone who entered into it and worked in it for a long time i came into it as someone who grew up around it with the, my dad was a funeral director so you know it was it says it's as much a part of my life or as normal a part of my life as anything <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Honestly, so there's 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 very little mystery about it. However, I think that that the we both have a certain perspective on what. So what happens to the practitioners in the funeral industry when they? So because everything, my dad would say this for years. He'd be like, you know, everything everything ends up in our lab, as far as that goes. And it's and I think that you know, um, and that's one. I think that's one question. You know, for for you, or I'd ask you too, is like about how, you know, everything sort of lands with the funeral director in terms of, you know, changes or whatever, but also too, like, like perceptions from the public about what's going on with funerals or what funerals are about or what funeral directors are about all of it. And that it all, it all kinds of, you know, and this, sometimes this is media reporting, but sometimes it's academic work, but that I think that the, it, it's, it's in the, it's in the practitioner as with many things about practitioners that those of us who work or study this can always, you know, I think benefit from thinking about as much as possible. Do you know what I mean? Although that's not a, that's really opaque way of saying it but that there are ways that practitioners i think open up the ideas of things we want to try and work with what what is practical and what is not and how these things work yeah there's something to something actually really interesting to think about from a a more academic perspective with someone like me is that the moment that i became a public figure i don't know that i could ever truly embody and relate to practitioners in the same way ever again like something kind of gets plucked out of it because i you know at my funeral home for example we would get pretty constant calls 
asking for me just because they want somebody would want to talk about human composting and they lived in Nebraska or they'd want to like they loved me and they just wanted to talk to me or get advice about being a funeral director. And so I couldn't be on the phones. Right. It was very difficult for me to be front line <laughs> in any way. Yeah. And I, like, totally, I totally know what you mean. Yeah, exactly. I never even thought about that, but I totally know what you mean. Yeah. You know, and it was bonkers because here I am trying to, and I think that this is something that academics will relate to in the sense of almost like doing anthropology, you know, and like going into a place and being like, okay, I'm here, I'm present, I'm completely part of this, but is there always going to be this barrier where I cannot at a certain level, understand the experience of right. the practitioner because right. I have to put all these weird boundaries up around me to make this right. funeral home run in right. a way. Um, right. And so, you know, and even if I, the things that I do, the times that I kind of, I guess you could say, go out into the field or, or work on human composting or, you know, work at a body farm or do these things, there's still always a barrier between myself, the advocate who's coming in to, you know, almost like, uh, do research and like LARP around a little bit <laughs> versus like the person who does this 365 days a year. Um, right. And, you know, at a certain point, anytime somebody explains their experience as a practitioner, um, either as an academic or a advocate, you no longer are a practitioner in a way. And maybe that sounds sort of harsh, but I think that that is, you know, and, and sort of what you're saying about your father, who was a funeral director for how many years? Uh, 35, 35 years. 35, but he, yeah. you know, basically a, a deep sort of lifer right. in it. And yeah, you grew yeah. up with it. Yeah. he's the exactly sort of example of um, someone who had a lot of great innovative ideas about the funeral industry and things he wanted to see happen, more women in the funeral industry. Um, changes open to changes in the funeral industry but also like he was on the ground in the in the very realist way right. you know having his funeral home for so many years and so i think that for both academics and advocates who come in and have these ideas about like the future of the funeral industry and what's possible we have to always be taking feedback from the people who are doing it every day as to what's working and what's not working and the fact is a lot of like, for example, a lot of the funeral homes um, that are sort of similar to the structure that I set up for my funeral homes in Los Angeles. Yes, we have this idea of offering green burials and home funerals and all these things, but we're also going to end up just doing a lot of inexpensive cremations, depending right. on where we and we have to bring as much like kindness and transparency to those inexpensive cremations as well as the other things. So I think that a lot of people have this sort of um, fantasy about what the future of death care is going to be. Um, but we always have to be like also getting an accurate accounting of what people want on the ground and what's happening on the ground. Do you find that, so, I'm curious, so do you find sometimes that what what people want, like let's just say, because this, this is a whole argument about like, um, choice and making choice gets used a lot in a lot of this but making sure which i think is legit but also too like making sure you know customers or families have different kinds of things they want to do but that a lot of what they a lot of what they want to do that they think is innovative we can even say or, or slightly different or new or something however you want to use the term and and that's important to them and it's important to support that but also too there's a moment where you're like actually this isn't that like this isn't that sort of groundbreaking however it is to this particular family do you, do, because yeah. they're, they're, they're challenging a norm that they might you know they, they're challenging a norm that persists for them 
And well, so you know, that level, yes. that's actually really important. Yeah. No, that, that's actually, I've been thinking about that a lot recently because it, there seems to have been a little shift in the zeitgeist where I'm seeing a lot of sort of larger um, like accounts on Twitter or or Instagram um, or like famous people. Like I think, who was it? It was like Steve-O from Jackass or something posted <laughs> posted something like a week ago that was like, you know, it's, it's like some, you, you're going to love this because this is very much within what you sort of critique yeah. him going like, does anybody has has anybody else noticed that the funeral industry charges too much for their services? And like they could just put me on a hole in the ground. I don't know if that's his exact quote, but basically the thing that we see a lot now is people discovering this for the first time, like a be- like a beautiful babe, newborn baby lamb, you know. And they're like, wait a second, I don't want to be put in a metal casket in the ground. I want to just decompose into the earth. Has anybody ever thought of this? Yeah. It's like, well, you know, tens and tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of people and advocates and, and academics and practitioners over many, many decades, but yes, welcome. Hello. You know, and, but of course that's, that's how you build continuing interest in a movement is you welcome those people in and go, yes, actually there's a lot of interesting work being done about this. Have you heard of human composting? Da, 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 da. Right. You know, so, but, but that is kind of the, um, you know, and same thing with families. It's like, well, I mean, especially if it's like with a family after an actual death, like it's certainly not a job, our job in a funeral home to be like, actually, yeah, we do that all the time. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, the, no, the I know, because be like, exactly. what a beautiful idea. Yeah. yeah and Absolutely. No, absolutely. Yeah. And you wouldn't, I, mean, I don't think you'd ever want to be like, like, you know, this isn't, I mean, I, so it was, if you, I've had conversations with um, crematorium operators here in the UK. And what they'll say is, you know, a lot of people think that they're, they've made these really funny music choices for mm-hmm. people to, you know, play, you know, like come on, baby, light my fire or, you know, like fire starter by whatever the things are. And and they're like, yeah, exactly. But they're like, but you know what? Like it's been done a lot, but the value, the importance is that, but you don't ever really, you don't say that necessarily because so the people are doing it's important to them. And so I think that, and that, and so that to them is meaningful. Now, actually, now we're actually moving into a really interesting territory, which is the relationship between meaningful and new, because things that aren't always new can still be very meaningful to people. And it doesn't necessarily have to be nostalgia, but I think maybe that's part of it too, is there's this distinction between what is meaningful and what has meaning and what has new, because many things that are, that are, that can have vast meaning don't have to be anything near new and that's okay do you know what I mean yeah no absolutely I mean when I when I think about what I would want you know for my funeral in many ways it's it's just people hanging around with my dead body and saying some things and then putting it a hole in the ground you know there's again like absolutely nothing new about that at all but and yet yet um in our society it still is a little radical to do it because we've lost those practices. Um, And so, I mean, I'm not saying it's radical in the sense that like, you know, climbing up a pole and tearing down a Confederate flag is radical or something, you know, but it's like, it's, it's not like wild activism at this point because there are so many infrastructures in place to help, but it is advocacy and it is, you know, pushing these different things forward and, and giving people at your funeral a different experience than what they might expect. And every time someone makes those, um, choices but something that something that we also talk a lot about and this is actually from my um my business partner at the funeral home jeff talks of who also owns funeral homes um 
like small green funeral homes in Seattle, something that he says is like, okay, you have younger people who are fascinated by human composting and they absolutely want it, or they absolutely want aquamation. They want a home funeral or they want to try and keep dad's skull or they have all of these, you know, ideas about what they want, but they're not the ones dying. Right. So, you know, and now, yes, we have 85 year olds who do want human composting as well, but that's going to take the same way that cremation took a long time to ramp up in popularity. These new ideas like aquamation and human composting are going to take a while to wrap up. And I know we want to get into questions, but I think, I think something that probably people have a lot of questions about, which might be worth talking about is what are the current like barriers to innovation as far as disposition options in the US versus the UK. And I know you don't have a British accent, but you do, you know. <laughs> I've got a foot in both worlds, the, as it were. You do work yeah. at the center with an RE yeah. at the end. Yeah, that's right. Society. Um, yeah, that's right. I think with, with things like aquamation or alkaline hydrolysis, um, which is the high heat um, dissolving with potassium hydroxide down to bone, similar to cremation, or human composting, which is the vesseled, decomposition of a body down to soil, um, both in a way kind of similar to cremation rather than burial, um, in the sense that both have matter that you can scatter somewhere after, um, not a single burial plot. Um, Although you can bury aquamation ashes or composting soil if you would like. Um, But what what are kind of these new ideas what are the barriers to anyone who wants to choosing them in the UK and the US? Uh, well, I think, well, okay, so both, kind of, okay, so, <laughs> so I think if we, so if we look at the UK, I think, you know, the, the kind of barriers sometimes are just, there, there's, it, it sometimes actually some of the barriers as, as I've come to see them are sometimes just sort of gray areas in the law where things aren't necessarily legal, but they aren't necessarily illegal. It's just unclear how they're regulated because the, 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 the overall legal structure around anything to do with dead bodies around in this country, in the UK would be, um, would be national. So it would be a national system of laws and then the regulatory side. And also to, you know, there is always a kind of, um, you know, what can be a barrier to change is sometimes can just be, you know, trying to, you know, you have to put in the time to get people who are interested to try and do something. And that can take a while. Like, so sometimes just to be really businessy about it, sometimes a capital investment can take a long time. And we can talk about like, sometimes it can take 20 years for something to catch on. Sometimes it catches on very quickly, but I think that kind of time frame is something that can be difficult for people to work on to. Also to, you know, just how things are reported in popular press. And that's a perennial issue about how things are reported. I mean, the number of times I've seen, you know, alkaline hydrolysis reported as being something about flushing, you know, it's usually flushing granny down the drain or it's always grandma. It's never grandma. Yeah, they pick, they pick it's, the most. It's, like, it's always grandma. <laughs> No one cares about grandpa getting flushed down the drain, but it's always grandma. We could spend a whole lot of time talking about that. And Don't I think flush me down the drain. Yeah, I know exactly. Oh, but also too, you know, it's just, it's just cultural change. Everything's just take time to change and that that but they do change. Like that's the thing. They do change over time. But that it's anyone I think who expects a kind of like very fast change, I think should be, you know, it has to like keep in mind, you know, like organ donation took many decades to become very normalized. Um, and I say that as someone who's an organ donor, and I very, very, very badly, if I die in a way that my organs can be used, all of them be used. And that to me is very important, but that was, you know, that would be the norm now. That was not the norm 
you know, for a long time, you know, organization was seen as not a, something that people should necessarily be wanting to do. It takes time. The United States is different because of the way it's set up in the state by state system. And you would have had more experience with this on the ground, but that, you know, every state's got its own system of how it's set up. And that, that you know, honestly, that the, every system, you know, every state system, sometimes every county has got its own rules and, and how the laws are set up. So that, that makes it much more difficult sometimes to kind of negotiate it. Now, I will say that also creates a possibility for some states to have more flexibility because say, for example, like Florida, their cremation law may be written so sort of sort of like abstractly or generally that then people who want to do things like alcohol hydrolysis or other forms can be like well no this law applies to us because it describes it too and they're like well it does so you know in the way that that happens generally speaking sometimes the law can get covered in those things and so i think that it's i mean it's very dependent on where you find yourself but what i would say this is the key thing is that you can expect these things to change that's the key part like you can expect all of it to change and not all of it but you can expect these things to change and that you know anyone who who i, I think it's very it's too easy to say like things don't ever change around funerals they change all the time it's very dynamic but it may not be as fast as some people want and that's part of it but that they do change and that it just kind of depends on how different countries take different you know takes on it it would be that's i don't know if that's a very satisfying answer but i think those are some of the barriers yeah i mean no i mean the the the, the long hard hard road to legalization of these things is not a satisfying answer um and i'll respond to <laughs> no that. no no absolutely yeah Dealing with and I'll, I'll respond to that all of it. yeah yeah really quickly and then we'll we'll jump into your questions because yeah. i know we've we've already do you think we didn't we think we didn't have enough to talk about? No, so, it's fine. Yeah, it's um, but yeah, I mean, I think it, as a sort of really general way to look at it, the UK does have na national laws right. around th things like aquamation and human composting, um, which should make it much easier to do it once versus the United States, which is right. 50 times 50 right. states, you know, the whole right. the whole. Yeah moral and legalization every time but as john said that does lead to um you know places where you can kind of loophole things around like some states they're trying to be like oh you the cremation we're just going to try and remove the word flame out of this and so cremation just means the disintegration of the dead body so now haha aquamation and human composting can fit in there as well um and so, you know, I think that there has, but also the legalization um, process leads to publicity every time. And as advocates, that can actually be exciting as well, because it tells people it's happening and it tells people there's a movement around it. Right. Yeah, no, and I, I, complete, no, I completely agree with you. I think that's the, that's the key thing, too. All right. Well, why don't we jump into some questions then? I, I, questions. Why don't we, um, I think I looked at one from uh, Simon Allen's got a quick question here, which was, do we know when webcasting at funerals started? I heard it was the Netherlands in 2000. First time I came across it was 2007, but that doesn't mean I'm sure it actually is earlier than that. So I don't know if Caitlin, if you have any deeper advice on, I know it was 2007 at least, but a lot of companies were getting into it. Um, if you um, no, I don't, I, I'm, I am definitely as the, like, um, yeah, sort of home funeral, green funeral, right. old school person. I'm just like, I, I'm a little, I'm not grumpy about webcasting. I'm just, I think people ask me a lot about like, what is the, you know, future of our Twitter accounts after death? And I'm just, that's not technology around yeah, that, yeah. that part yeah. of death is not yeah. my expertise. Although I bet there's a lot of people at your conference yeah. who 
Well, yeah. it was, well, yeah, it's really dating things, time. but it's been around for a long time, would be what I would say. So this is a, a question from Claire. What are what are the thoughts regarding human composting in the UK? Are we likely to see that sooner rather than later? Um, I, I think we both agree we will see it. It's somehow it's just going to be whether or not it's a change to laws. But I think it's coming. I don't think there's any question about that as an outgrowth of green burial or sort of natural burial in this country. That's my thought on that. I don't know if you have a different thought on that, Caitlin, as someone um, who's been around the UK. What, you're, you're, say that last part again. So, Sorry, I was reading questions. <laughs> no, I know, I know. Wait, what are your thoughts regarding human composting in the UK? I, it'll get here eventually. That oh, yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And it will definitely get there. And um, there are, you know, you already have such a strong sort of green burial or woodland burial culture right, yeah. in the UK. Yeah. which I love. I, I really wish we used woodland burial <laughs> in the U.S. Um, but I, I think that there are differences mostly, are you city, are you in a city where that kind of land is not available to you for not a non-exorbitant price? If so, composting may be a better option. And then second, um, you know, are you interested in being kind of a single tree or various trees? Various trees, yeah, right. I want, I want to answer this one. Please go ahead. Yeah, you choose one. We can do back and forth. You choose one. We'll go Sorry. back and forth. Yeah, I love this question, and I'm glad you brought it up. This is from Corinne. Hi, Corinne. Um, she's curious about the word new in this context, um, given that we tend to treat things as revolutionary or new without realizing there are different cultures or groups already familiar with these concepts. Um, how do we talk about things being new to a specific culture, but not necessarily to everyone. Um, I love that question because I think we both kind of think about that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And again, it's like, it goes back to what it being kind of hard to be on like NPR for a, you know, three minute hit on something and not to be able to give that context. Yeah. Um, I think Green Burial obviously is a fantastic example. Um, and uh, everyone should read uh, Corinne's article on the Order of the Good Death called, I think, um, <laughs> what is it called? It's called, I came up with it. It's so bad. Um, it's like, you know, dude, um, where's my green burial or something? It's basically about uh, answering this question. So I'm glad you asked that question. Um, but I think that with green burial specifically, when we're talking about just putting a dead body in the ground, it's almost cultureless. Except for the fact that in the 20th century, it's been Jewish people, it's been Muslim people, especially in the United States, who have kept going this this ability to to preserve their rights to just put their dead body in the ground. And how do we acknowledge their kind of barriers and bravery throughout the 20th century doing that while also presenting the fact that it is an ancient practice for pretty almost all cultures, including the United States and the UK to just dig a hole and put the body in. And that that all different cultures can celebrate that. I think another really good example of that is um, like the idea of your body being be eaten by animals, which is something that I want, frankly, for my dead body. But what I don't want is a Tibetan sky burial or a Zoroastrian burial, because neither of those are my culture. So it gets into sort of a weird cultural appropriation thing when people are like, I want a Tibetan sky burial. It's like, okay, well, there are very specific like Buddhist rituals around right. that. That is probably not actually what you want. You just want probably something similar to what I want, which is a sort of agnostic, like chew me up animals put me back into the cycle, which um, can be done, I think, not appropriative. So I think when you talk about these basic um, things that humans have done for you know, millennia, 
you just want to be careful about not doing specific cultural or saying specific cultural terms or references that sort of take away from the argument of the universality of it and end up appropriating another culture. And, and I'll wrap, and I, I'll yeah, wrap up this answer up here because I could talk about this for an hour. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree with all that too. And I think Corinne's absolutely right. I mean, in terms of like the, like the, the idea of new, how that works. Well, we can, let's keep going. You're absolutely right. But I agree with you. Like, really Which is why we should have said, yeah, it should have been new and exciting. Yeah, yeah. appropriation issue. Um, I want to flag up here, Anne, and Anne, thank you for, you've done this before and other things I've done. And, and I know this about how the laws surrounding death are different in Scotland. You're absolutely right. And I complete, I completely, you're absolutely right that when we talk about the United Kingdom, that even within the UK of Scotland, England, Wales, Northern Ireland, there are differences within this. And there are what we've described as devolved powers around that in that there are different laws. So you're absolutely right. And I want to make it clear that there is in some ways um, more progressive and innovative things happening in Scotland, quite frankly, around that. So so even with what we describe as being a, a sort of like homogenous, although you know, place is actually rather heterogeneous and there are different laws in that way. So thank and thank you again for pointing that out. You're absolutely right. And I do all respect to my Scottish brothers and sisters because I'm Scottish and my mom's side of the family. Okay. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, I mean, that's the same same thing with the U.S. states too. Like fighting yes. for yeah. as we're fighting for acclimation yeah. legalization in Texas right now. Yeah. That's the arguments we're using are completely different than what right. we used. In yeah. Texas. Sure. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. You and, know, it's you, like different cultures have different 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 cultures meet the different. No, I completely. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. And, Ellen, you're up. You grab. Yeah. Whatever. Um. I mean, we. Can, can we go a little? I mean, I feel like we're sort of frantically answering these. <laughs> but like, we have time, right? We just, yeah, yeah, we'll, um, so this is from Lindsay. I think this is also very good question. In order to more effectively include those in late, late adulthood in the death positive, green funeral, body disposition, alternative movements and advocacy, what do you do now or plan on doing to present this information more inclusively to the elderly populations? That's also something we're thinking a lot about. So I appreciate you asking that. Um, and I think the number one thing that we're trying to do now is meet people where they are. So we have just started um, at the Order of the Good Death, which is my nonprofit. We started a um, pretty extensive <laughs> growing um, volunteer program, which is going to community centers, libraries, um, you know, maybe even nursing homes, places where older people tend to congregate, which is not YouTube, <laughs> you know, or Instagram or uh, Twitter. Um, and providing them with in-person, just, you know, we're not, we're not selling anything, obviously, but just basic um, understanding of their rights on right. the funeral. And, you know, originally the, the program that we had prepared was a little, I had to sort of pull back a little bit on the original draft of it, because it was very like, here are these radical things you can do with your dead body. And it was sort of like, okay, these people are talking about cremation prices. They want to know about how to, you know, have a viewing without embalming. Maybe, you know, they want these sort of very simple, <laughs> accessible, price conscious options because that's where they are and that kind of goes back to our original conversation of um people who are in their 80s and 90s aren't necessarily into like the radical movement you know <laughs> they're they're much more into like i'm about to die can you please help me have this discussion and give me my options in a plain way so meeting them you know in their communities is one thing but then also making sure that our information on our website or anybody who, who puts information online does so in a very accessible, plain, you know, if you Google green burial, want one, 
you know, that you get very clear information in Q&A format and that. So it's not, we're not depending on, even though new movements are often extremely connected to social media, this is one that we have to be aware that it's not entirely tied to social media. Right. Yeah. And and I agree. And there's different ways to approach that too. We should never exclude someone because of their, their age. We assume they can't find the information one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. And that's true. Too. Well, I mean, I have, I mean, people all the time will comment on, for example, YouTube and be like, I'm 90 and this is my, I love to hear about, you know, yeah, it's not as if we don't have an old generation that uses the internet. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it would be, I yeah, mean my dad sure doesn't, yeah. but yes, right. there's a lot, there's lots of people who do, of course, but um, I mean, they're also for, for some of, um, some of the elderly population, there may be a point where they're no longer able to use the internet for whatever right. reason, um, or they just don't have access to it. Right. And I think that's probably what um, Lindsay was talking about. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that too. There's a good question here actually. And it was, we have, we, this is a, this is off kind of where we've talked about, but I think it's a really good question. It's from Melissa about what is your advice on um, prolonged grief? And I, but I'm actually going to take this in a slightly different direction. I'm going to take a liberty with this, which is, so, you know, obviously grieving is, is very, I mean, grieving is very, individualized, but I'm actually curious, Caitlin, what your take is on the listing um, uh, of, of prolonged grief disorder or that there is a grieving disorder by the, the APA and the, um, um, the DSM, the DSM. Yeah. about that, because I, 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 I disagreed with it, but I'm curious yeah. just to put my cards on the table about that, but I'm curious what your thought is on that. Uh, I disagree with it too, um, with a caveat. And I have a caveat too. Yeah, go okay. ahead. What's your caveat? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> We've got caveats. Uh, hold on, everybody. Hold on to your shorts. We've got caveats. Um, yeah, I think that there is um, obviously pathologizing prolonged grief is an extremely Western way of looking at it um, and not a particularly helpful one. Um, my only caveat is that, especially in the United States, in order to get counseling, or additional help right. in the health and in the health system, yeah. you need to trigger some diagnosis. Yep. Yep. So if someone yep. is, you know, is at a point that their partner died six months ago and they are deeply depressed, it's not just I talk to him every day or I pray to him or pray with him every day or I have this connection, ongoing connection to him, but it's legitimately, I am deeply depressed. Right. I'm deeply anxious. It is, it is kicked over into an additional condition if they don't have something to ping and write in their little box in the health system to get paid as a practitioner, then it doesn't ping, you know, in the system and they can't get that, that funding. And so I did sort of, it's sort of a weird condition where I don't agree with it existentially as there's no limit on time of grief, but I guess bureaucratically I have to somewhat support it. Yeah, that's my caveat too. Like the whole reason it was was put in there, and I, because I for a long time I just was like, this is completely unnecessary. But it was about, I would say it was almost like ten years ago when I read about it being thought about. Maybe it was six, maybe it was eight years ago. I, I saw someone explain that well, this would be necessary for people to access um, in the United States to use health insurance to access counseling. And then I was like, oh, now I get it. Um, but I still disagree <laughs> with the whole the whole premise that way. Um, and uh, yeah, and I don't think we, I don't think that's one topic you and I haven't talked about. But that is certainly something that is this idea of like you know how we think about um, something which is you know very old traditional thing like grieving. Anyway, we could go on and on about this. Should we try and do one last question, uh, Caitlin? Because we're, we're yeah, out of time. Oh, you, your I choice feel bad. here. 
I want to answer all these questions. I know, oh, I know. They're, they're really good questions, guys. All right, you you pick the question, so I am not responsible for having <laughs> a third question. Uh, oh gosh. These are all very good questions. I know they are very everyone's gonna like everyone's gonna hate me. They're gonna be like, no. Well, why don't because I think we're both very pro-education. We got something here from Stevie. Do you have any advice for mortuary students who are finding themselves disillusioned with traditional funeral industry? Um yeah, I do. Um I mean, you know, be the change you want to see. And that's uh, discouraging and tough. But John and I were actually talking about this right before we went went on today about how, yes, there are so many more women or, I mean, even LGBT plus, Q plus people in the funeral industry, but that has not yet been the case for enough time to trickle up into senior management. And of course, there are women who own funeral homes and, and gay people who own funeral homes. Like that's all, of course, out there, but it's rare. And the people who are going to become owners and managers are the people who are now still in mortuary school, who are still coming up through the ranks, who are working for big corp funeral corporations, who are working for the co-op, working for SCI. You know, those are the people who are who are coming up right now through the ranks. And there is a lot to be learned about funeral service from those big corporate companies. There's a lot to be learned about funeral service from, <laughs> you know, your older, more crotchety boss. You know, there's just like a, a lot to be learned no matter where you are. And obviously, if you're in a, if you're in a situation that's really, really bad for you and against your values, maybe don't stay there. But if you're just in a situation where you're sort of disillusioned by the funeral industry, I mean, that's that's the point. Like. A lot of people are disillusioned by the funeral industry and we're trying to light a fire under people's butt to, to change it. And having you there willing to weather the storm of, of that and, and think every day about how you could make it better. That's what, that's kind of what you're there for. In addition, that's, and that's, and that um, is a difficult answer because in two ways, I'm kind of saying you have two jobs. You have not only the job of being a funeral director and working with families and, and all that that entails, but you're also, so doing more and, and working on change in real time. And that's a tough position to be in. And if you can do that and handle that, you are a, a foot soldier on the front lines and it's a really important position to be in. I know my dad and I, we said before, I said before as a funeral director, he and I, we talked about this over the years, and I think that one of the things he always stressed was that, you know, if you if you want to see change in the funeral industry, which he did, and he was a big advocate for lots of different things that we've done different ways. I mean, he, you know, he he had this revolution, he had this really, and at the time it was very political notion that you that when a funeral director writes the obituary and with the permission of the family, but that you should put the cause of death in the obituary and not try to sort of couch it in um, euphemistic language, that it's important to state why people died. But that he would always say, like, if you want to be, if you want to see some kind of change, it's it's important to, you know, within the industry itself, that you need to, what you should do is once you're able to accrue um, over some experience or time like that, that you then begin to just implement those changes and do it. And then that's, it's maybe easier said than done, but that these were the, that was the way that he tried to do it. You know what I mean? He wanted to try and get things pushed through and did it. And then he did it, you know what I mean? And that to me was always, I think, 
Um, important to keep in mind that way because um, it is possible to change those things, but it can also take a long time. I think it's <laughs> just. Entailing. I mean, the funeral industry right now, with what's legal, with what's possible, with what's being offered, is pretty substantially different than yeah fifteen years ago. Yeah, I agree. I, it is. I think it is. I think it's a different industry, and I think it's one that's that way. Um, I, you know, we're over time and we can, I mean, we can, I, I don't want to abuse your time and we can keep going and going and going, but like, it's, it's up to you. I mean, in the audience, how much, how much they've, um, right. Well, they, they will start to a bit peter out as well. So let's answer, let's answer like, uh, two more. Okay. Very good. Okay. You, your choice then. Um, I, since you made all right. Then it's my one. choice. Um, I saw one that I liked. Oh, here we go. Um, they, this person wonders what we think about the language that's being used around new technologies and the way they mimic other kinds of virtue signaling using words like organic, composting, curation, nourish, revitalize, words that help to move eco-conscious services into more commercialized and expensive services slash products. Um, that's, I like that question because that's also something I think about all the time. Um, and I mean, composting is sort of different because that's actually just the most, um, if anything, I think some people are put off by that term and it's a choice that right. people in the movement have made to be like, no, we're saying it like it is, but definitely there is a, a lot of greenwashing in the funeral industry. And of course it's going to get worse as more traditional funeral homes realize that people want green burials, they want eco-services. I think the NFDA, the National Funeral Directors Association, did a poll, um, a recent one, that found that 65% of Americans are interested in green death services. Um, and of course, green death services is kind of a broad term, but they're just more interested in an in environmentally um, conscious death. But just the way that environmental consciousness can cause a lot, or can cost a lot of money in life it can be made to cost a lot of money in death. And so one of the things that I try and do as an advocate is, is talk as bluntly as I can about how, and it's tough because we were trying to sell something in an advocacy, not sell something economically, but sell an idea. It's hard to sell the idea of less. It's hard to sell the idea of just like, you don't need it. You know, you don't need it is not a sexy advocacy, but that really is kind of the greenest thing is like, you know, embalming, you don't need it, heavy casket, you don't need it, vault, you don't need it, keep the body at home, in the bed, there's mother, in the bed, you're all around her, you're having an amazing time telling stories about her and learning about her and, and gently washing her hair and that costs zero dollars. And then how do we have the, as far as disposition options, um, you know, how do we move into a place where the government provides cemeteries that are just simple green cemeteries for people and right. the government provides good options for just simple, inexpensive thing. The government subsidizes composting where people can make that choice. Um, and so really the, it's, it's hard because it is going to, especially as Silicon Valley gets more involved in producing these things and selling new types of funerals and funeral plans, it is going to continue to be greenwashed and continue to be sold in that way. When in reality, the actual advocacy should be just like, hey, are you doing too much? Like, can we pull back on a lot of these things and just like be present with our grief and do a simple, you know, um, thing that matches with their goals 
for themselves as an environmental person in life and environmental person in death. Um, that's my hope, but I do, um, the popularity of it goes hand in hand with people exploiting it, unfortunately. And I, I completely agree. I mean, I think that the, the, the point of, yes, I completely agree. And I think that the, it was, um, uh, you know, it's funny, it's ironic because at this point, the, the, like the addition of the word green to anything is kind of old. <laughs> that, that becomes, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, certainly yeah, not you know, exciting you know, and new. It's yeah. not exciting <laughs> and new. You know what I mean at all? But that, I think that that is absolutely. And I think that that's, you run the risk of those things as well. And that, that is always, always something to, to pay attention to. Um, because there was a great article I read many years ago where it was, it was actually about the whole idea of green barrels. And this was about 10, 12 years ago. And it was, the commentator was, um, was Jewish and was like, was like, oi, the Jews have been doing this for thousands of years. Like this idea of a simple, natural kind of burial, like that's not, you know, within certain groups, that's not a new thing at all. Um, and that that was their point was, you know, sometimes you have to be very, you have to look carefully what you think about, not carefully as in you shouldn't do it, but that think about how, you know, sometimes, you know, these things are, are not they're not the um, they're not the step change sometimes you think they are. They can be, but they're well, also yeah. priorities. Nobody, nobody should be talking about home funerals or green burials as new in any way. Right. But at the same time, and this is where I always run into this issue, is like if you're doing advocacy around them, you have to, how do you get to the exciting without the new? You know, how do you, how do you right. sell the excitement of the return to this right. process that like, especially in the United States, or I mean, actually the United States and the UK, 150 years ago it's what everybody did right you know you died you had the body at home and then your little cousin down this down the farm road made a coffin and they dug a hole in the farm and that's where you went in like that's you know for for all cultures really um you know and obviously people native people were doing different things but like that was what was done right. and no of course it's the as i said the exact opposite of new but like, is it still exciting that it's coming back? Is it exciting that it's having a revitalization? Yes. So how do you walk that line? Um, I'm the right person to ask that to. It's hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I know. All right. <laughs> so he said, dude, do you want to do, we're at, we're at like 10 after, do you want one okay, more? Okay, all right, you pick the, you pick the real Oh, no! <laughs> you can tell us about, about time for it to wrap up because we're both just sort of like- I know, Let, you know what, I think, I think, I think talking about like, the idea that greenwashing was something that may have actually that it's always important to keep up. I think that's a good place to end. Like that 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 the, the abuse of the new. Yeah, exciting and new to the abuse of a new. That's our new uh, provocative yeah. chat. For yeah, the abuse of new. So let's let's call it let's call it here, Caitlin. Thank you to the excellent audience and thank you for yeah, hanging. This is thank really you good questions. Yeah, really, really good questions, really good guys. Questions. I apologize. I apologize that the terrible chairing I should have steered us into those questions earlier, but nonetheless, <laughs> we're never gonna. But anyway, but thank you to thank you to the organizers for the Center for Death and Society conference for doing this. Also, thank you to Callum, who's been our AV guy behind the scenes, getting us all up on Zoom. Um, and again, let me thank um, Caitlin for taking time tonight to do this. It's always good. It's always good to talk with you, my friends. So that's why it's and we don't, we don't do it enough, but it's fun when we can. So um, I appreciate that as well. So yeah, everyone, it's great to be. It's really great to be in a group that everybody is down to have these exact conversations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like have such great, great. You no, know, I completely agree. Yeah, awesome. it is. 
it's a it, it is it's it's a it's a real privilege to be able to have those kinds of things so let's call it a night thank you everyone cheers go cheers go home caitlin you hang around we'll we'll we get we'll decompress yes. here but thank you thank you guys have a good night and we'll call it there bye bye